This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and joining me as always is Mr. Matt Caraccio. Matt, how are you doing this evening? Paul, once again, man, just excited to have another opportunity just kind of to, you know, kind of disconnect a little bit from the realities around us and take a little bit of a kind of solace in the fact that football is something that just kind of puts us all at ease and gives us a little bit of something to kind of think about and enjoy. And obviously the guest tonight is just got me really excited. I mean, every time this gentleman joins us, I always say that I don't think I'm sitting here if it wasn't for him. So Paul, I mean, once again, I mean, this particular episode is just something I cannot wait to start. Yeah, absolutely. As Matt alluded to, we are privileged to be joined once again. I think the guy probably leads the standings in terms of appearances here at Saturday Sunday Football Podcast, and it is Mr. Matt Waldman. Matt, welcome back. Congrats on another year of the RSP in the books. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Paul. Matt, it's it's always great to do this show. This is one of my absolute favorite podcasts to do every year, and I always look forward to you know, as you get through the, you know, getting through writing a publication where you've written like 500 words in a month, you're, you're all you can think about is getting a chance to actually talk about the, about the players with people. And this is one of those shows that I always look forward to because you guys are so knowledgeable and, and you ask such great questions of yourselves as well as of your guests. And so this is, this is just one of those opportunities where you just kind of let loose and hang out and it is a, a good time to just kind of forget about everything and we were we were kind of laughing trying not to you know to keep from crying i think from everything that's going on right now absolutely and you know i know i just started digging into the 2020 version of the rsp and every year I, i'm just blown away by the depth of it I love the part, you know, Matt, I always talk about, and we, we have other great guests that come on and things always skew towards rankings. And they're just, you know, we laugh all the time because we know we got to talk about them, but to talk about fantasy rankings before the draft is so pointless and irrelevant. (laughs) I was having a conversation on Twitter today and I was just saying like, nobody should call them fantasy rankings prior to the draft because they're just draft rankings. Whether you base your rankings by watching film, by doing metrics and, and, and analytical stuff or some combination of the both, that's all these rankings are. They're, They're, Fantasy rankings are dictated so much by what happens on draft weekend in terms of opportunity and draft capital and landing spot. So, you know, I I read so much of your thing and I always get a a little bit of a chuckle at the part where it says something about like, you know, why rankings are terrible or why rankings suck or something along those. Why rankings suck. Yes. Yes. And and I always laugh at it, but I also also completely 100% agree because we're trying to watch these players as people who do you know what, what you do and what Matt and I do here at Saturday is Sunday and we're doing it with a scope of the entire league and we're not doing it for individual teams and and specific schemes and take into account what other teams already have on their roster so it's it's almost an impossible task so I, I love the fact that I, I see that in in your RSP and and I always get a laugh out of it and I think it's so spot on and so true so we're just going to talk players tonight and you know 
guys that maybe you're a little bit higher on, lower on, or guys just that that I'd love to hear your take on. And we're going to start the wide receiver position. We're going to spend a good amount of time with the pass catchers tonight, and then we'll we'll dabble a little bit the quarterbacks and running backs maybe at the back end a little bit. But but right at the top when I look at the wide receivers two guys that I want to pick your brain on one guy is, is someone who's been getting a ton of attention since the season ended and that's Denzel Mims who's basically been a guy that you know I know you're all about watching the film everyone else is kind of who who's a little bit late to the party with Denzel Mims but you've been high on him fr- from the get-go from watching him and then a guy who has not been in the, the spotlight at all Brian Edwards out of South Carolina who couldn't perform at the senior bowl who couldn't perform at the combine obviously with everything going on in our country no pro days you know those two guys I, I think are really intriguing and I'd love to hear some initial thoughts on those two prospects yeah they really are and and I like both of those players and it's it's fun because they they kind of have similar problems, at least from what people say. You know, from what you hear is they both have issues catching the ball from time to time. Um, and that's that was kind of the mark against both of them. With Mims, it was focus drops for sure. Like I, I he makes some of the most spectacular acrobatic catches, catches against tight coverage. If he has to catch a defender's arm, he'll do that in the process of catching a ball. Um, you know, he and CD lamb make some of the most, um, really acrobatic plays you'll see of any, any two receivers in this class. And then you have the fact that he's really grown in his game. I really love his ability to, to work off press coverage, to really release. He plays the game very well in that respect. He'll, he'll set up defenders as he goes along. He has some smooth double moves that I think can get even better. Um, but he's, he's used to playing physical, used to also being, um, you know, finesse in terms of being able to avoid the press, but he also runs some pretty nice routes inside and outside. Um, and I like what he can do after the catch. And, and so the, really the, the cherry on top was the combine performance. It just confirmed that what you saw in the film, which was that he's very athletic, that he's very, he has very good quick change of direction. Um, his acceleration is decent enough and his speed, his top speed, he has a really good top gear with Edwards, you know, I didn't see a lot of drops. I saw more in his his previous season, but not this last one, not 2019. 2018, I saw more. I heard about more as well. But last year, I didn't see as many. I love how physical he is after the catch. He's very powerful. He also has good contact balance. He's someone that also is capable of some of the most more spectacular catches that you'll see um, you know, on film. But I also think there's room for him to continue to grow as a route runner. Um, and I, you know, I didn't look at him as a, you know, I think I heard Lance Zerline say that he's like, reminds him of David Terrell. And I kind of use that as a basis for his comp. Um, and David Terrell was a big, strong receiver for the Bears who couldn't hold on to the football and kind of dropped his way out of being a starter, um, despite being, I think, a first round pick and a high one. Um, you know, uh, you look at Edwards, and I think that Terrell is more his starting point. I think that when you look at where he could wind up as a player, I had him more in line with being um, like Javon Walker, maybe as his upside. And so he's not quite there, but he's a guy that I think is closer to Javon Walker's upside than he is to David Terrell's downside. Yeah. And, you know, just to pivot off some of the things that you mentioned, you know, I, I think one aspect, and this was the big thing that stands out to me in the RSP as I continue to to kind of delve down that world of, you know, motor learning and skill acquisition is in some ways just how um, 
ahead of your time in terms of some of the things that you were alluding to in the RSP actually begin to show themselves in the research and things that I'm seeing. And, you know, to, to pivot this to somebody like Brian Edwards, you know, I see tremendous depth of skill within certain areas of his game. The breadth is not necessarily there. But the depth is tremendous in certain respects with regards to winning vertically and being able to, you know, win downfield. You know, he just has, a, you know, a very, very um, strong um, kind of uh, unable to like almost like an inertia and an unable and immovable object, so to speak. His ability to win downfield is a tremendous, quote unquote, calling card for him. But that, I think, is a testament to his depth of skill. And with Mims, I think that you really painted a great picture. I think he has a lot of breadth of skill, but the depth in all the areas is maybe something that we're working on. And maybe we haven't tremendous. Am, am I, am I saying that right, Matt? Because I think that those two words, depth and breadth and, and the way you use them within the RSP, it seems to kind of match up with this notion of being very good in something. Maybe not as, you know, good all around, but maybe very good in something that can translate. It, can you, can you unpack that a little bit with the, with regards to these players? Sure. You know, and I think that that makes perfect sense. You know, breadth of skill is really, to me, it's kind of where I started because when you first started, when you first start evaluating players, and especially when I was in a vacuum, kind of just kind of learning how to do this on my own. I didn't realize what I was doing was, okay, what is a wide receiver supposed to do? And then you look at all the things a wide receiver is supposed to do. But then as you gain maturity in this field and you've watched enough tape and you start to do enough years worth of evaluations, you become the real, you come to realize that not every receiver should be measured against Jerry Rice or not every receiver should be measured against the, you know, someone who can do everything because there are lots of people in your workplace who can't do everything that's required of their job task, but they may do four to five things, um, you know, above average and may do one thing like a superstar. And that's what gets them elevated to that next tier and promoted and, and become productive in their craft. Whereas there are some people who may be ungodly good at two to three things, but they're awful at others. So you kind of have to work around them if you're going to keep them on your team. And I think that's the same thing that goes with wide receivers. And when you look at Brian Edwards, you're right. Brian Edwards um, is a guy that I think when it comes to what he does at the catch point and after the catch is very strong, what he needs to work on is more with the route, route running and the, uh, um, you, you know, and releases off the line of scrimmage to get a little bit, show more, you know, show more versatility so that he can handle a variety of different ways that defenders attack him so that, and then be able to win. Whereas with Mims, you see that he has, you know, a, a breadth of knowledge with his release skills. He certainly has, he doesn't have necessarily the depth of skill as a route runner yet that I think that you want to see, but he, he does just enough well enough that it, that it ranks him higher where you, you feel like he can be, he can be competent outside right now and probably run a select number of routes in the route tree and deliver for you. And then he has the super high end, pass catching he has you know above average skill after the catch and he has what i would say above average skill for a college player at you know at the line of scrimmage releasing from people 
Yeah, I mean, I think those are great points that both of you guys made up. And I think it's going to be fun to watch Mims and Edwards and, and kind of see, you know, what the NFL thinks to them in terms of where their draft capital might go. And it's such a unique wide receiver class with so many guys. And, you know, again, like we were talking about before, like what teams are looking for, I think will dictate a lot in terms of where some of these guys go. I want to pivot to two other guys. And one of my favorite things, Matt, of having you on the show is our ability to, to kind of go a little bit deeper than not just the top guys, the guys that are talked about all over the place. And I think these two names that I'm going to bring up are guys that people know who they are, but there's not a lot of conversation on these two guys. And I think in a lot of ways, personally, and I'm really interested to hear your take, I see some similarities in their game. They're two guys that don't win with you know speed and athleticism. They, they win more with their, their size, their frame, their physicality, their play strength. Can you talk a little bit about Quintus Cephas and and Jawan Jennings out of Tennessee? Uh, I think both of these guys are really unique. I think both of them might be best as playing from inside in the slot, but I'd like to hear your perspective in terms of where they're similar, where they're different, and and maybe what you envision for them at the next level. Yeah, I love these two players. These are two of my favorite players to – to, to talk about. And so it's, it's fun that you, you guys appreciate them in, in what they can bring or what their potential brings. And let's talk about Jennings first. You know, Jennings, when you first watch him, you, I thought, wow, this is a 215 to 225 pound player, kind of a Brandon Marshall type who can win, you know, with his physicality because he seems to break a lot of tackles and bounce off contact. He tends to make the first man miss his transitions upfield, that whole idea of of catching and piercing upfield immediately, he excels at. That's one of the things he's the best at in this class. Um, and then you watch him block. And man, if you haven't, if you've seen the BYU game where he's like lead blocking on plays against linebackers and turning them, and they're trying to redirect, and he's locked into them, and you're, he's just he's not manhandling them, but he's staying with them and playing to the whistle and and winning these interactions against weak side linebackers. And you're just like, wow, this is so impressive the way he can, he can square punch, redirect, keep his pads to the pads of the defender and work that man around um, the ball carrier or turn him away or drive him to the outside. And you just get excited watching it because you don't see wide receivers do that very often. So I'm watching him and then I watch him run like a, you know, a double move, like up the seam, kind of like a post against South Carolina, and he gets nailed in the chest. It looks like that T.O. catch against the Packers in the playoffs way back in the day at the goal line for, like, the the game winner. You know, he makes one of those plays where he gets hit so hard that he literally goes flying out of bounds and hits, like, the brick wall in the back and, like, it still, like, pops up, has the ball. And I'm thinking, this guy is so good after contact. He's so good in the physical realm of the game. And then you go see him at the senior bowl and you see him at the weigh-in and he's like pencil thin, 208 pounds. And you're just like, what, what, what is going on? Like this guy's like, this guy looks like he's like, he plays like he's 225 and he's like, he's 208 pounds. And he looks like Randy Moss is like starved cousin. It's like, <laughs> it's, you know, it's not the, and then he adds, and then he adds like another, you know, seven or eight pounds. Um, before the combine and he shows up at 215. He doesn't run very well. You know, he was didn't show a lot of speed in at the combine on that end. But he's got a quick first step. 
I don't like how he uses his hands to catch the ball. They're they're a little too inconsistent at this point. So he he drops a lot of passes that he shouldn't because he doesn't frame the ball well with the right technique, and his hands can be a little too wide apart at times. And so it leads to him tipping passes or having them bounce off his helmet that he should catch. But, man, when he plays his best game, he's – and I think he's capable of becoming better – when he does that, I think he could be a really tough slot receiver in this league and a very, very productive one who maybe if he runs faster than he looked at the combine, and that can sometimes be the case, he might have a shot at being a flanker. Cephas, Cephas is my guy. Like I, I, I like the, this guy watching him on tape, the way he uses his hands at the top of the stem. To be able to, he uses like two moves and uses them in succession to usually either chop down and work over the top or to be able to rip and dip. And he uses a number of combinations and he's very sudden at that point where he can manhandle the guy and turn around and get separation on the curl, on the hook, on the comeback, you know, those types of routes. But then he beats people downfield and he has that late acceleration. He has. You know, I thought when I first watched him, I thought he's got to be like four, five, four, five, five, somewhere in that range. That's what I thought. And, and especially watching him like tear up the Oregon cornerbacks who are two, you guys know better than I do how good those guys are, but I've heard that they're two of the better prospects in the nation. And he tore them up in the Rose Bowl. I mean, there's a play that he gets interfered with and he comes back in bounds and makes this diving catch that didn't, that didn't count because he had one foot out of bounds. But just to see him win that as well as like face Michigan State and make plays where he's catching the ball directly over his head, one of the best ball trackers in this class, which is an underrated skill we don't talk a lot about. But, you know, we think about Sammy Coates and how gifted of an athlete he was. But hearing someone say, throw the ball over his head and you'll find out how good of a receiver he actually is. And that's what a lot of teams should have done. Cephas is that kind of guy who tracks well, bounces off linebackers with great contact balance, unbelievably strong for his size. And then after the the after he had that bad 40, I guess he got some um, a little coaching up that he should have had before the combine. And he did the combine's version of the Kaplan, uh, you know, a couple weeks late um, and then ended up running a four, five, six at his pro day, which is more in line with what I thought. And you see his vertical and you see, you know, see the vertical in the 20 shuttle. And they were more matching of a guy who runs between four, five and four, six based on my records of looking at guys who ran, who had at least a 38 and a half vertical leap. There were only like five guys in the past 10 years who ran lower than a worse than a four, six who had a 38 and a half vertical leap. And I know that's not like correlation to anything because it's such a small sample size, but it's interesting. I'll just put it that way. And so, yeah, Cephas, I just think, I think Cephas is going to be the steal of this class. Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting is that you brought up like ball tracking ability as being something that, you know, we don't necessarily appreciate enough. And I, and I, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, because when you think about one of the most paramount um, details of being a wide receiver, what's the most important task that they need to, to actually do? It's, <laughs> it's catching the football. So where, why wouldn't tracking the football be something that is important to intercepting it or catching it? 
Why is that not something that we look at more carefully? Or I don't want to say look at it more carefully, but we don't appreciate it necessarily within context more and more. Because I agree with you. I, I think that Cephas, the, the, the only thing I had with Cephas was, is I agree with everything that you said. I think the biggest thing about him for me um, was, and I'm a little late to the party, so to speak, was in terms of his handling of you know um handling of any type of contact or any type of you know issues you talked about you know he has a a repository of moves that are pretty consistent that he uses regularly and i think he has tremendous control meaning under various circumstances timing spacing he knows how to adapt those moves to those situations and the only thing i had you know a little bit of reservation was as he develops more and more at the next level he's certainly going to need to open up that toolbox a little bit more as he as he graduates further and farther forward. But I do think that you're a hundred percent right in terms of the, the notion of tracking the football and where that exists along the spectrum of importance for a wide receiver. It probably is one of the, one of the top two things that they need to be able to do, because if they can't track the football in a variety of circumstances, what exactly are we actually looking at now? Just getting open. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think what happens is that we presume if we're looking at the right things that ball tracking is this underlying thread that's embedded in the different techniques. But you notice that we don't really look at those techniques as much as we should because I don't, you know, I don't pay attention to a lot of other draft analysts out there, but I don't see a lot of people talking about how they frame their hands to the football appropriately to the level of the target. I don't hear about people talking as much about whether they're leaving their feet to catch the ball at the catch point and on targets where they should keep their feet on the ground. Cause those are two things that are symptomatic of players who aren't tracking the ball. Well, if you're not, you know, if you, if you see the ball at chest level and you jump for the ball then you're not tracking it well. You're not seeing it. You're not anticipating the trajectory of the ball correctly at that point. And so that's something you're going to need work on because if you're leaving your feet and then catching the ball with that underhand technique on a pass where you should be using the overhand technique to get your arms away from the target and your feet are in the air, now you're putting yourself in a situation to where you can't transition fast enough up up the field, you're going to be more likely to take a hit from a defender who's got more time. And now the, now you're having to fight the ball or um, make a contested play. Um, so those are more difficult scenarios that, that Sammy Coates was, vic- you know, a victim of having, you, you know, to deal with in a lot of situations because he couldn't track the ball. And I think that coaches do this better than what's, than maybe what we do out in this world where they coaches are better at like doing certain exercises to track players. But it is interesting because the Steelers are, are often praised for their picking of wide receivers and they've picked a number of good wide receivers for sure. in in the recent, um, in recent years, but Coates was one of their picks. And, and, you know, I had a scout say to me, like I, you know, during the senior bowl, he's, I remember him saying to me, he goes, I, I wish one, I just wish one of these guys would do a drill where they would literally have him with his back to the back to the person throwing the ball and just throw the ball up in the air and have him look up and try and track it. Because I think we'd find that nobody would be talking about him the way they are. Um, and I remember hearing that and just like, wow, interesting, you know, and, and when you watched his game, it was like, yeah, if he could face the ball and go up and win it easy, fine. You know, he still had some drop issues, but it was better. But man, if he had to, 
if he had to look that ball in and track it in at a different angle, it was a bigger challenge for him. He was doing math, you know, and, and that was a harder thing for him to be able to do. So, you, you know, we saw that with him. We saw it with Robert Meacham way back in the day, a big time athlete as well. And it's just one of those scenarios where I, I just think some teams, they don't break it down into the minutia that maybe they should. And as a result of that, that they can sometimes miss it because it's one of those deals where it's um, it's like you're talking around the subject, and sometimes if you talk around it too much, you may miss that underlying chord that's most important. And but most of the time, you may get it, but occasionally you'll talk your way around it. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it's such a important you know trait to really be talking about, and I think it does get lost in the shuffle sometimes, and it really shouldn't, you know. So so I think it's something that really uh, you know we really should hone in on at times. Let's let's take this to the completely opposite end of the spectrum. We just talked about two guys that their game was built on, you know, their play strength, their physicality, their toughness. I want to go to some of the burners. And these guys kind of get grouped together at times. But, you know, just kind of looking through your RSP, they're kind of sprinkled throughout your rankings. So they're not like really all that close to each other in terms of it. And I, I'd love just to hear your take on from Henry Ruggs, to Jalen Rager, you could throw Brandon Ayuk in there, and then even KJ Hamler, who we haven't heard. Like those guys are guys that you can see NFL teams manufacturing touches for these guys, getting them the ball in space because of that speed. Obviously, we know Ruggs has got the speed to win vertically as well. I think we all assume KJ Hamler has it as well. Uh, and then Ayuk and, and Rager maybe didn't run as fast as some people thought at the 40, but I also think they're guys that can win, you know, in a variety of ways. A little bit about those guys and, and some of the differences, I think, between them, you know, kind of making of why they're a little bit spread out on your rankings, maybe more than, than some people might kind of bunch them a little closer together because they do have that, that speed card. Sure. You know, Ruggs for me leads the list and, and certainly he reminds me of a guy like Santana Moss. And I was recently on Chris Harris's show and, and he kind of thought about Moss's production and what his audience would think. And he joked that it was like a sad trombone effect that you would hear when I said Santana Moss. But if you see, look at Santana Moss's best years, you realize that if he were in an offense like today, um, that they have today, he'd probably be a star. You know, even and he had a long career, 13 year career, and he had some pretty strong seasons. I mean, over 1300 yards, I think a couple of times in his career. So, you know, this was this is a very good player who could go up and win the ball, play tough, um, good vertical leap, good skill after the catch. Um, and he reminds me a lot of rugs in that regard. Rugs can win the ball in tough situations. You just don't see it very often. You really have to look hard to find those plays. Um, but he's made a couple, you know, that are, that are so good that it's enough. Like that's enough for me. It's not like him juggling the ball three times. It's more like, you know, holding off one guy with one arm, making the catch away from his frame with the other, turning away from, you know, position and, and still being able to win get his feet inbounds while, you know, dealing with contact. When you're doing those many things at once and you're doing it as expertly as he showed, I'm sold, you know. So he, you know, to me, he has some hand framing issues with his, with it at the chest level, which is very common. That's a common tracking flaw for most players because it's that confusing point of, should I use my hands overhand or underhand? And it's the, the difficult area to track. So it's not such a big deal. Um, so I think he has fewer flaws than the other guys you can see him play split end or the slot it's a, to me i think 
Tyreek Hill's a little bit too strong of a, a comparison just because Tyreek Hill's more Steve Smith to me than anybody who's been Steve Smith, and he's still a ways to go before he's Steve Smith because he doesn't have that physicality that Smith did. He's got the contact balance of an of a running back because he used to play it at Oklahoma State, but he's not the rugged leverage oriented throw guys around with the throw by um you, you know technique that Steve Smith had and mastered. Um so and he's not quite the route runner Steve Smith was. Um so there's there's those things. But I think that Ruggs is a good but not great route runner. Um and I think that he's a he's an above average player with his um, work in the open field. The speed makes him look like a superstar, but I'd say he's above average um, more than anything. But he's, you know, he's in my top five. Um, you know, after that, you know, when you talk about Rager, I don't worry about the 40 time because you can see what he does on that field and he's beating angles left and right. He's incredible in, in traffic. Like his movement is very efficient, um, but he can make some of these little drag steps and pressure cuts that can get him to change direction at a high speed without slowing down a lot. I like how he wins the ball in the air. He's a tough player who will play hurt um, and come back into a game. And, you know, he's got some refinement to do technically that a little bit more than what I'd say um, Ruggs does, but he's not that far away in, in my eyes. I think that he's a guy that could wind up being a really dynamic slot player or a split end in the, in kind of a Brandon Cooks like mold, mold, but even maybe more dynamic than Cooks at the catch point because I think he can handle contact a little bit better. Um, you know, talking about Ayuk, um, I'm not an Ayuk fan. I, I, I think he can be good. And I think this year, like if he gets put on a team where, there's two other good starting receivers and they can match him up inside or use him outside on double moves. He can win against off coverage. He can win against zone coverage, but put him press, press him up man to man. And he just falters to me. He doesn't, he doesn't show me enough as with his release moves. Um, he's inconsistent with how he uses his hands. Interestingly enough, when it comes to like fourth quarter plays or fourth down plays where they really need it, he plays correctly. He like he uses the correct techniques. But other points of the game, it's like, get your head on straight. You know, it's kind of like focus, man, focus, because he doesn't always do that in those situations. So I want to see more out of him as a route runner, more out of him with his releases, um, because I see more angular routes with his game. He's good after the catch, obviously, and very a lot of fun as a punt returner, very good vision. Um, but I, I think that he doesn't have great speed. I think he he wins off the double moves more than he does just blowing by people. Though he can, he's done that on occasion. I'm just not like as convinced as some of the other guys like Duvernay and and Rager and and Ruggs. And then Hamler, I really like Hamler. I mean, uh, Hamler is very brave in the middle of the field. You just don't want him there, um, you know, in high traffic a lot because <laughs> he is small. He's at that point where you have to say. Dude, that is that's small enough. You got to worry about it. You know, I'm I'm usually one of the last people to be like, oh yeah, you don't have to worry about that. But once you get to about Paul Richardson weight and below, I've learned that you have to worry about getting bet in half and not being available for half the year. Um, so he's one of those guys that I worry about. That he's one of the best pass catchers on low targets that I've seen. Like really active hands, very you know, extending his arms on low throws. Terrific vision. I love what he does 
in traffic in the open field um, and being able to, to set people up. I think he's one of the best there. And he does win the ball extremely well on deep routes. I think he could be one of those guys that has that very limited breadth of a game, but he has a really strong depth of game that you put him in the right situation and he could be one of the most productive rookies right out of the gate. Yeah. And you know, as I'm unpacking some of the things that you said, the first thing that really stood out to me is the biggest thing that you said, which resonates with my own kind of process is you don't need to have, you know, um, a thousand different exposures to warrant consideration for a particular trait or a particular skill set. And I think that's, I think that's really good. It's the quality of the exposure. So I'd love to hear you kind of hit on that because when the, when the complexity is that which is kind of behaving and feeling like the NFL, those are the exposures we got to kind of zero in on and really try to make the most of. And you don't need a thousand of them to necessarily be able to parse out what is reality and what is something that is maybe just uh, a trick of the eye, so to speak. So I, I think that was really great. And the, the thing that I wanted to, to ask you about um, is you, you brought up uh, Ayuk and Hamler and specifically with those two players, you know, I, I think that you really hit the nail on the head with Ayuk. I mean, Ayuk to me is is a very developmental prospect. You have to invest in him and you're going to have to invest in him. You may get the return that you're looking for. You may get the, you know, the quasi Juju Smith version of a player and maybe that can do a little bit of everything is tough and physical and can do maybe a little bit of everything off screens and maybe be great in the return game. Maybe you can get that from him. Um, but I, I, I think he's a player that you're going to have to invest in. And with KJ Hamler, the, the the question I have with you about KJ Hamler is is he reminds me a little of of things that I felt about Tyler Lockett coming out and I don't know what that what that that feeling in the pit of my stomach means so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Doctor Waldman right now if he sees anything symptomatic in my own feelings about where we might see commonality between those players I just I watch him at times and I see that that. I guess that physicality and like you said, that bravery, so to speak, that courage across the middle of the field. And I get, I get those shades of, of a Tyler Lockett style of player. Is there any Dr. Waldman, is there anything that I should be going to the doctor for or, or, or is there any reason to think that we're okay here? I mean, do you, do you have similar kinds of feeling? Maybe not the same player, but is there something to that where he could be more than maybe we know what he is right now? Yeah, I think you're right, and I think that you shouldn't be worried about that at all. Um, okay. <laughs> I think that I think that he's he he is a guy that looks very good winning the ball and cutting off defenders downfield in the air the way that Tyler Lockett does. And there's an ease about the way he moves and makes sudden stops um, and changes the direction at full speed you know, 30, 40, 50 yards down the field to win these balls away Lockett, Lockett does. So, you know, you combine that with his open field skill. And, of course, Lockett's a very sound comparison. I actually like that better than the comparison I had, which was Marquise Brown. And I never really felt great about using the Marquise Brown comparison. Um, but I think that Tyler Lockett's probably a more apt aspiration. And, you know, if we're going to talk about K.J. Hamler, I, I would love to just add that, 
Jeff Thomas, I have him one spot behind, and they're essentially even on my board. The only difference is Jeff Thomas got in some trouble at, at the University of Miami, but you watch him in the open field, and some of his moves are just breathtaking. And he's very, and he might even be better on the perimeter. Like Hamler to me is better in the middle of the field. That's where he's been really sound. But Thomas flashes some as a perimeter player in a way that might give him a little bit more upside if it weren't for the questions about how he got played well with authority um, when it came to, you know, the coaching staff and things like that. I mean, would you take us a little bit deeper into Jeff Thomas? Because that is certainly a player that I think that is really um, not the, the typical, you know, player that you're seeing all over the place. I mean, what is it that has intrigued you about Jeff Thomas? And can you kind of give the, the listenership a little bit of an overview of just what you can expect from a player like him? Well, you, you know, I, I, again, I think, um, suddenness in terms of movement, someone who can who can win at the catch point on the perimeter and take a hit, um, so he can run some of those timing routes for you and be able to still win the football. Um, he's smaller than KJ Hamler; he's about eight pounds lighter, but the same height. Um, he has, you know, KJ Hamler is the type of guy that is probably has probably better vision in the way of like. He doesn't get himself into trouble in terms of that he has to work his way out of, but he can work his way out of difficult situations. But he'll he'll tend to use moves to set up guys one or two steps ahead, whereas Jeff Thomas can get himself in a situation where he's pinned to the sideline in three different directions and find a way out with the damnedest cut you'll ever see. Like some of the, you know, against Florida, there's a play against Florida that might be one of the most breathtaking cuts I saw all year where it just made no sense. And kind of the same way that Gail Sayers, some of his cuts make no sense on a, on a muddy field on Keysar stadium on a punt return, you know, against the 49ers back in the day. But like he had some of those types of moves and because he could play after contact, play a little bit more physical on the outside. Um, I, I think that he gives a little more versatility as both a slot and maybe a split end on occasion in the way that Travis Benjamin could kind of do that, but maybe with more upside than Benjamin um, in terms of, in terms of what his skills show, but the same point, he he got suspended a couple of times at University of Miami, and some people allude to it being that the coaching staff was inflexible. and And Mark Mark Richt is kind of an inflexible guy. Like you know, it, it was admired more at Georgia because he was like, "Look, I'm not going to play into the whole SEC. Let's recruit these great guys, and if they these great athletes, and if they get in trouble, we'll do everything we can to cover it up or make it." in the best light as we can and still get them on the field. Mark Rick didn't play that game and I admired him for that, but at Miami, um, you know, which is also another school I matriculated at. So if you're going to like get on my case, anyone out there about me criticizing Miami and not Georgia, understand that I probably am more of a hurricanes fan than I ever was a Georgia fan, but Miami's a little bit more of a, I think Miami would be more fitting of what the sec often gets criticized for, um, or the top ACC teams get criticized for. I think they'd rather turn the cheek, you know, turn the other cheek and like, you know, give these players multiple chances in ways that maybe they do or they don't deserve. And I think that Rick, I think Rick was probably more his old self and Miami was like, nah, we don't do that around here. Um, we, you know, you can't do that. This guy is one of our best players and we don't have so many players that we can just put the next one in with our recruiting and not, 
not do that. We're going to have to, you know, kind of babysit these guys a little bit more than the way you were, you were used to at Georgia, you know, and, you know, to Rick's credit too, he wasn't one of those guys that when those guys failed out, like Les Miles did at LSU, Les Miles, usually, what do they call them? Gray shirt, those guys, or, you know, put, you know, kind of keep them from getting to another SEC team. Mark Rick had no problem saying, if you find another team somewhere else and you, and they want you and they're our rival, that's okay. Good luck with you. We want the best, but you just can't play here because you broke the rules, you know, and, and, and I get, and I made it pretty clear. So Mark Rick treated people like men. And I think that some schools really want them to treat them more like teenagers who are growing into men. And there's an argument to be made either way about both ways to go about it. And I, I'm not criticizing either one. I'm just saying the, how the differences are. And Thomas is kind of at the epicenter of that, that conflict. And we don't know which one he is. Is he a teenager growing into a man or is, you know, um, or is he, you know, or is he already there? Yeah, I mean, I love the fact that you brought up Thomas because he was a guy that I had circled his name ran down and I was not getting enough of this show without bringing him up and talking about him. So I'm glad you brought him up there when, when we were talking about those other guys. Two less wide receivers to kind of round it out and one's the perfect pivot to the tight end group as well. First, I want to hear your thoughts a little bit on LaVisca Chenault. Uh, you know, obviously he's a guy that I feel like his stock in the consensus or the media, whatever you want to say, is a little bit on the downward slope since the season ended. I'm still a big fan of him. I'm really excited to see what team gets him. And I envision a scenario if he gets with the right coordinator. And Matt and I were talking, you know, on a recent podcast with Graham Barfield that we don't really trust all the coordinators out there. But yeah. if, if LaVisca Chenault was to get with a right scheme, right coordinator, do is it right to see similarities of what Kyle Shanahan did with Debo Samuel this year early on for LaVisca Chenault? Get him some touches, jet sweeps, end the rounds, touch passes, get him the ball, let him use that size and physicality. Because I do think Chenault is a guy that can win at all three levels of the field, but he might have a little bit of development and refinement in certain areas. But if he's used creatively from the get-go, I think he can make an impact from year one. And then Chase Claypool, who I think is such an interesting – I don't remember ever seeing in the RSP before. It probably happened where a guy was in two different sections as a ranking in a wide receiver and a tight end. I'd love to just kind of hear your thoughts on, A, where you think he should be utilized, and is there much of a difference? Because Matt and I have gone on record on the show and said we're a little confused by the people that are like, oh, maybe make him a move tight end. Well, if he's a move tight end, isn't he just going to be utilized like in the slot and not really doing any tight end things? So then is it, does it just become like a designation for eventually franchise tags and for fantasy football, or could there be a legitimate role for him as more traditional tight end? Man, I love both those questions. Those are great. Um, you know, I, I think for Chenault, um, I'm with you. I still think I, I'm not down on him at all. I don't, you know, I understand that maybe there's some, there's concerns about the medicals because of the, of the, um, you know, the turf toe more than anything. Like he ran a four, five, eight with a sports hernia. I bet there's pros who couldn't run a four, six, five who usually ran four, four, you know, high four fours, mid four fours with a sports hernia probably couldn't have run anything more than a four, six, five. And he ran a four, five, eight and then got surgery like a couple days later. Man, you got to be kidding me. That to me, that's like a, 
to me, that's a combine. That's an impressive combine mark, not a bad combine mark. And then you watch his tape and it's like, listen, Steven Montez, you know, good college career for, for at the university of Colorado, but I don't see him as a pro prospect. I see him as a one read quarterback who, as soon as teams realize that he stares down um, his first read, that they can blitz the heck out of him, and he doesn't know what to do at that point. And that's hey, that's okay. He's got a great deep arm, you know. He can throw the ball deep, and when he has opportunities to hit that first read, you know, he and Chenault had some success there. And Chenault was underrated in terms of being able to run some of the speed outs and comebacks and some of the perimeter routes that I think in the intermediate and deep parts of the game that I think are um, impressive. There's some impressive um, tools to be had in terms of how he drops his weight and comes out of his breaks um, and, and comes back to the ball. I think he obviously has to expand his vocabulary in terms of releasing from the line of scrimmage and, and selling certain types of routes. But the, 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 the basic breaks and understanding of how to set up a defender are all there. It just has to be refined and expanded in this game. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty bullish on him. I hope, I agree with you that if they use him like Debo Samuel, that would be perfect. If they, you know, early on, and then they could expand his game from there. I don't want them to use him like Cordero Patterson or um, or Tavon Austin. I don't want the, him used in the backfield. I, I hope that, like you said, that the right offensive coordinators gets him because I don't want him to be a running back that gets injured some more because I don't think that that's really his his game it shouldn't be his game he can do it but why like let him expand as being an outside threat be a terrific flanker or a split end in this league and and can really offer a lot and then you know chase claypool really grew on me i i really didn't like him at first um he was i didn't think that he dropped it there he always dropped a pass in like every game and there's still some plays where he makes good tech technically sound plays where he just drops the ball and it's not a focus issue from what I can tell, not like a, um, an egregious one. It's not like he looked away too soon or he used the wrong technique. He just literally the ball bounced off his hands. And that concerns me when you see that on a, it like game in and game out. I don't like that. But then the more I saw him run routes, the more I saw subtleties in his game that I could appreciate, um, especially with some of his releases and some of his stems. Um, the bend isn't quite there for me in terms of the sudden stops, but it's not awful. It can get better, I think. You know, he's he's nearly there. It may never be great, but I think that he'll be competent on certain routes. You're not going to ask him to run double moves off of what he does because I don't think he'll ever be that convincing. Um, but he wins the ball in the air. He's physical. He can he can run some after the catch. I don't think he's as dynamic as his speed shows up on, and that's why I think some teams like say let's put him inside, and if you use him on the inside, then he'll have better mismatches against linebackers and safeties where he can do more damage. And I think that that's why I have him ranked a little bit higher as a tight end, but it really is a tomato-tomato situation because it's like Jimmy Graham. It just is like, what is he? Well, it depends on what the team wants to pay him to be, and they're going to pay him to be a tight end even though he's really a wide receiver.
Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things that were interesting there. I mean, first of all, going back to what you said about Chenault, I mean, I'm right there with Chenault being a very versatile player. And I think that, you know, my fingers are crossed that he does end up with the right coordinator. And I think that it was really interesting that you pointed out the intermediate areas of the field. I, I agree with you. I see that movement skill in him in terms of his ability to find the correct timing to drop his hips and separate. I mean, there's an awareness and a sensitivity to DBs, which shows an appreciation for coverage. It's not like he's devout of complete understanding at the wide receiver position. There's just, it's just a little bit of, I, I felt this way about Stefan Diggs when he was coming out of Maryland. I felt like yeah. they were just asking him to wear too many hats. And when you have to wear so many hats, you, you fail to develop any type of skill within any respective area. And yeah. I just feel like, you know, that's that he's a guy that I think is going to tremendously benefit from having a singletary solitary role yes. on a team. And I think that's something that I, I eagerly look forward to. And I think Chase Claypool, I listen, I have always been, um, you know, a, a person that was, I, I don't want to say an outright fan, but a player that a person that kind of thought Chase Claypool had a role in the future. And I think that what you pointed to, which I think is tremendously interesting um, because I feel exactly the same way is to use your vernacular vocabulary. There, there is, there's a fairly dense vocabulary as a route runner comparatively to what he can do. And yeah, it's not the same as Jerry Judy, but it's, but the awareness and timing of what he does yeah. is, is definitely intact. You see that he's timing what he knows how to do correctly relative to players and making good decisions about what he wants to do in order to create that leverage that he needs to make the catch. And I think that that's going to translate, you know, up the ladder. And I think your point about bringing him inside, it's why in our recent draft, I, I took him at the end of the second round um, as a flyer with guys on the board that we've already talked about. Um, because if he does, I mean, let's, let's look at Ricky Seals Jones as a player who's made that transition in the NFL. I mean, with the air raid and run and shoot coming full storm into the NFL, I mean, he's your perfect H back in the quote unquote air raid. And that would be a guy that is going to literally be a, a player that's a little detached from the line of scrimmage in that quasi slot position. And that's going to be your quintessential player that can attack the seam, can also attack the intermediate areas of the field. And he has the capability to do that. So I, I think that was just a fantastic spot on. It just, it kind of, it kind of makes me feel good that, that my feelings and my, and, and, and my thoughts on some of these players as I'm exploring a different lens kind of resonate with what you saw. So, I mean, as we kind of go on, Paul, from here, um, just, just if we take this to maybe a position like the running backs in the quarterback position, you could pick anyone. It doesn't really matter to us, but I'd, I'd really like to hear, are there players? Let's say, let's just do the quarterback position. Is there a player that maybe stands out to you that is just not necessarily getting enough or an equitable share of attention at that position? Is there a player that you think really needs to be, I don't want to say moved up boards, but needs to be get, needs to garner a second look from teams. Do you have anybody like that at the quarterback position? I do. And I think there are really only two quarterbacks that we can look at and say they're, they're ready to go. Like they're going to learn on the fly. They're going to have ups and downs, but they're guys that, that you can feel pretty good that they should, if they don't provide franchise caliber production over the first contract, it's towards the end of their first contract, they're going to be disappointments. And that's Tagovailoa and Burrow. I think they're, they're the heads of the class. 
And I don't think there's anybody close to the, those two, but um, the rest to me are guys that they're not necessarily developmental players, but if they, but if I could give them a developmental grade and say, sit on the bench for two to three years, let's, let's work on some things. Then you've got a shot to be a good starter there in that tier. And the guy at the head of that tier for me, who might actually be close enough to being able to start on the fly, but I think everybody just is hating on him. And that's Jake Fromm out of Georgia. I'm a Jake Fromm fan. Mark Schofield, my buddy who writes for me and we do a podcast together, literally wrote me and said, I'm stunned at how high you have Jake Fromm rated. You know, literally said that to me. And, and, and I know I said, where did you have him about seventh, eighth on your board? He said, yeah, seventh. And it's probably not that far away from being seventh on my board with that next tier, but he's at the top of my tier. And, and the reason that I think people need to look at him again is, I, you know, I started watching him and I've talked about this on my own podcast, but there were plays that I'd watch and I'd chart him and I'd look at the, the opposite hash velocity. Everybody said he has a noodle arm and I watched the opposite hash velocity and he charted out higher than all but one player. And, you know, admittedly, you know, it's an eight to 10 game sample size, but, it, but still, you know, and the, and the sample size is low in terms of the number of throws that were truly opposite hash or opposite field, but I saw a lot of throws that looked like the velocity was there. The problem was is the ball showed up late, and usually what we all have learned through experience is that when the ball arrives late on an opposite hash throw or a sideline throw, then that's a sign that it doesn't have enough velocity on it. But something didn't make any sense to me how that was working out, and I just started, you know, I was researching what he was saying about his arm strength and what other people were saying about his arm strength because I'd already graded him. I already saw where I had it, but I wanted to see if I need to rewatch something. And I, and I came along two things. One was Chris Sims doing an interview on Roto World of Jake Fromm, and they talked about his arm strength. And Sims kind of anecdotally said, listen, you know, my dad was an NFL quarterback. He had a lot of friends who were NFL quarterbacks. I played for a cup of coffee in the NFL you know, I've caught a lot of NFL quarterbacks. I know what a, a strong arm feels like and what a weak arm feels like. I've caught enough passes to know that. And I was surprised at how strong your arm was, Jake Fromm. Like, I didn't expect your arm to – it's stronger than people realize it is. And Fromm talked about how much of an arm thrower he was because that's how he learned as a baseball player and didn't use his feet enough. And he's had, and now he's realizing he's got to go to the school of Drew Brees and like learn how to get his feet under him to throw with his hips and feet to generate more velocity. And that he got away with arm throwing. And then on top of it, he's very thick in the upper body in terms of muscular development. So he's got to stretch out his body a little bit more to get more of a whip like motion. And he's working on those things. So that's a positive. And yeah, when you watch his game, I don't think he's like, I, I, I would never say, Oh, he's, he's not his arms more Jacob Eason like than you realize. No, I'm not saying that in the least. But I'm not. But I don't think he has Cody Kessler's arm. That's where my buddy Mark and and I think Dan Hatman are like they. We've had these discussions and and they're like they've brought up Cody Kessler and I'm like nah, I don't think he has Cody Kessler's arm. So the other thing I stumbled upon in addition to him saying this is I I got to I decided let me watch J T O Sullivan's QB school. I don't know if you've watched his stuff. It's fantastic. So I was watching his, his QB school on Jake Fromm. And one of the things that he brought up was that James Coley, the off, former offensive coordinator, 
was using five-step drops on routes that the NFL uses three-step drops. And that's when it hit me because you watch that and you go, oh, that's why it looks like he's got a noodle arm because he's throwing the ball two steps later than than what's normally prescribed for a quarterback to throw the ball. And that means the ball's going to arrive late against tight man coverage. And when we see on the surface that the ball arrives late, we think weak arm. When in fact, but it didn't quite match up for me because I'm watching, I'm going, I see some zip on these throws that's not like Cody Kessler-like. It's more than that. Um, so what gives? And I, and I'm starting to, I started to kind of come to the conclusion that Jake Fromm kind of got hamstrung by his offensive coordinator more often than we realized because his offensive coordinator was like, let's have you throw the ball two step later than what, uh, on routes that against NFL caliber cornerbacks playing tight coverage, um, than what you would normally throw in the NFL. So of course it's going to look late. So you combine that. And I know that data wise with some of the charting that I've seen out there that, you know, there's there's some positives and negatives with him, but I, I like how he I like the wisdom in which he plays the game. He throws very few interceptions. He makes strong decisions. I think his off platform throwing, in terms of the short and or, and maybe low end intermediate of the range of the field, is unusual and and strong, and it's and it stands out. And I think that he's a player that could wind up being a starter in the league and a good one in an offense that allows him to, you know, you know, be more of a Drew Brees, Kirk Cousins type of player. And I know that Dan and I had this conversation, you know, and, and we probably should have podcasted it, but it was like Dan brought up the argument that I'm, he's veering away from players who are Kirk Cousins like, because, you know, it gets you 10 and six into the playoffs, but then what, you know, do you have enough to get over the hump? Maybe we should be looking for more dynamic players who can be, you know, who can, you know, create on their own. And I'm, th- and I, I understand that. And I think that's great. You know, that's one way of looking at it and that's, it's valid. But on the other end of the spectrum, I think, well, you know, how, how great was Kurt Warner? Like, I really liked Kurt Warner, but how great was he really? Like, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would say, you know, I think he was very good and he was certainly a Hall of Famer. He ended up being a Hall of Famer, but Eli Manning won a Super Bowl. You know, Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl. You know, you obviously need great teams to in order for that to happen. But to me, my philosophy is you can, if you get to the playoffs with a, a good player and, and you can get a you can get a guy like Kirk Cousins to get you to the playoffs. And say it doesn't, you know, in a certain window, it doesn't work out. You know, maybe you bite the bullet with your team and say, we have the guns right now to do it. What do we have to do to get that great quarterback in here right now? Kind of like how the Broncos did, you know, with Peyton Manning. How do you figure that? How do you figure out a way to get that guy in there at that point? So it's about team building. But either way, I just think. I think Jake Fromm has a chance to be a starter in this league and actually a better one than people realize. Um, and, and I think a lot of it is that people saw the bad game against LSU and they don't realize how much of that was the offense of scheme and young receivers and being a team that isn't really about throwing the ball down the field. But Fromm has the distance. He has the Matt Ryan distance in terms of throwing the ball. And he can throw the ball on the move and, and win that way. So I, I don't know. I may, that's, this may blow up in my face like a number of other things have, but it's a, 
but it's one that I feel pretty strongly about. And he's my number three quarterback in this class. Yeah, I think it's such a fascinating conversation because in theory, sure, a guy who is a better playmaker would be great. But there's not 32 Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, and Deshaun Watson's, you know, just there for the picking like an apple tree. Like, you know, there's there's guys that are just solid, good starting quarterbacks, you know, and Matt's gone on record here on Saturday to Sunday that he says – you know, he envisioned a scenario, and we've been talking about Jake Fromm here for years, I feel like, that he said, what if he's an Alex Smith-type player? If he's an Alex Smith-type player, there's a whole lot of NFL teams that would sign up right now yes. for Jake Fromm to be have an Alex Smith-type career. I mean, so if he's Alex Smith, if he's Kirk Cousins, I'll even say, what if he's Chad Pennington Well, before Pennington really lost it when, you know, he tore his rotator cuff, I think it was, again, and then really couldn't make any throws. Like, he had the Jets winning 10-11 games and being very competitive. You know, he could be in that spectrum. So, yeah, maybe he's not getting the round one buzz anymore because people are hoping to find that, as Dan alluded to, that playmaking type. But those guys, those guys aren't easy to come by. So no, but they, but the NFL seems awfully arrogant about the idea that well, we missed on that Mahomes and Watt, those Mahomes and Watson and Jackson guys because we discounted them. There's another one coming in the draft. See, there's this guy from Utah State that <laughs> that 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 can throw like that. That's well, all. You, we'll you know train what? Him. Not to not to jump in here, boys, but I mean, honestly, I think that Matt, you alluded to it. It becomes an organizational question. If you have everybody that's above average. Then what is the missing link? Why is it the players? It may not be the players. It could be what we're doing organizationally with those players to create the product on the field. So I'm not saying we should need to point fingers, you know, at our personnel decisions. It, there may be a personnel decision that needs to be changed. But when we talk about preparation for the game, preparation for the weekend, getting ready for Sunday, getting ready for what happens next year after contracts and things like that, there could be bigger organizational questions afoot. If you're not winning with a player like a like a Kirk Cousins or an Alex Smith, there could be other questions here that need to be answered far beyond just personnel. Let me just add one last thing about this. I know I brought about Kurt, Kurt Warner. The difference between Kurt Warner and Alex Smith and Kirk Cousins, to, if you ask me, and Drew Brees really even, is quicker decision-making, more instantaneous decision-making. It's not athletic ability, you know? And it's also teams where the players don't the, – the players didn't go – when Kurt Warner left whatever team he was with, the players didn't say, oh, thank God, now we have a real quarterback in here. I mean, they said that about Kirk Cousins um, in Washington, um, you know, and with Alex Smith, we always knew his fatal flaw was that he's like, am I, he reads leverage and then is like, am I sure I just saw what I thought I saw? You know, I thought I taught putty cat, you know, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but I think with Jake Fromm, the thing I like about him is he doesn't hesitate at all. He is a excellent reader of the field. So for me, if someone says, well, I don't want another Kirk Cousins. And I'm thinking, well, then you're looking at the physical and you're not looking at what's in here because I think that Jake Fromm has it up here to be a, a good starting quarterback. No, and 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 I'm, the only reason why I'm jumping in is and just because we're getting way off kilter, and I'm, I apologize to everybody That's listening fine. right now. But but no, but then you wonder though if if there is a decision making aspect that's not being done in the right amount of time. Why aren't we as coaches, organizers, offensive coordinators looking at our practices and saying, what can we do to better facilitate more synergy between our players to enhance that decision making? 
And that's not to say that they aren't, but I'm just saying is, is that sometimes those elements, those cerebral elements, yes, some of them are owned by the player for sure. And those could be limiting factors for those players for sure. They're, they're rate limiters for them. But also then when we look at the practices themselves, what are we doing to facilitate it? I mean, if we're just running to a coin cone and turning around and catching the football and calling that practicing our button hooks, well, that's just not going to cut it because there's so much more complexity on game day than just that. And again, I'm oversimplifying it and I'm not trying to, you know, I don't know what's happening in practice and I'd be remiss to say that I have any understanding of that or cardinal knowledge of that. But I'm just saying is that I think some of these questions when it comes to decision making, when you're talking about these razor thin differences between these players could come down to what are we doing organizationally to facilitate more synergy and more consistency and communication and speed of decision making amongst our team. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And I think it's one of those things that the hardest thing about it is that sometimes these coaches are saddled with these players that they didn't want to pick and and they would have picked something different. And some of these coaches may even believe, some coaches may believe, well, it'll come with experience and the quarterback has to gain that experience and then he'll, the light will come on. You know, the old adage of these cliches that, that gather around, which is really comes down to, well, are you creating, like you said, the experiences for them to actually get the light to come on earlier if it comes on at all? And and for me, I, I, I don't know the answer because right now I would say I think it's you have it or you don't. You either have the timing or you don't. You see the field immediately or you don't. And and you act on it with that 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 great timing or you never do. And it's mm-hmm. and and I, I'm more in that line until we get to see evidence of better education and development within teams post draft um, to be able to prove that it's otherwise. And I'm open to that proof being the case, but until we see that dynamic, all I can say is until then, it's going to be you either have it or you don't. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we're we're just a little bit over an hour here. There's a couple of guys at the tight end position. I know we wanted to pick your brain on and then a running back question or two to close the night. So okay. if I take this back to the tight ends, overall, what do you think of the group as a whole? Because I know you were on last year, and we were right there with you. We were big fans here as well as you of Irv Smith, and we liked Hawkinson, and, and we had a lot of conversation here with Noah Fan as well. I personally don't see anybody in that group. I've gone on record saying I think round three should be where tight ends start maybe coming off the board in this draft class. So I'd be interested to know if you see anybody that maybe could warn a round one or early to mid-round two. And then two guys – Devin Asiasi, I feel like, is getting no attention. I saw you at him in your top five. I have him in my top five, so I, I'd be interested to hear your take on him. And then I know we, we haven't went the rankings route too much, but I'd have to at least bring up and hear your take on Cole Komet because – from your from your from the RSP, it's clear that you aren't as much of a fan of his overall game as what we're seeing portrayed out there in the media as he's the consensus number one guy. I don't agree with that either, but I'd love to hear your takes on a couple of those tight end things. Sure, you know, I think I think you're right to say round three is probably the place to go because there isn't a guy here that you look at and say he's an all around threat. He's not a Travis Kelsey. He's not a Rob Gronkowski. He's not what TJ Hawkinson or OJ Howard had the potential or have the potential to become. Um, still in their games, They're, these are guys who are either have first round caliber talent as receivers or second or third round caliber talent as blockers. But when you combine them together, they don't have the whole picture. So that's kind of where I'm at with them. 
Devin Asiasi to me could wind up being the best tight end in this class if he if he develops because he is the closest one to being able to have both. He has that suddenness in terms of in and out of breaks. He's good. He's good on you know these routes that break back to the quarterback. He's very fluid transitioning upfield, and he can make that first man miss or break the first tackle or the second tackle. So he has some running skill, and I think the ability to become a good blocker is there. I think that there's some some potential there, and he's a late bloomer because. Caleb Wilson was so productive with Josh Rosen for most of those years. And then he got, I wouldn't call it a grace year, but he was a senior and, and he had a good career. Are you going to really bench him in favor of a guy who still had a little development, even though he may have more upside? And I think the answer we saw was no, they're going to, they were going to keep Caleb Wilson on the field until, um, you know, he passed to the, into the NFL or the, or at least graduated from school. So I like Asiasi a good bit here. And then Komet, you know, listen, probably one of the better blockers in this class. He's probably one of the guys that's close to a first round talent as a blocker, but he has some work to do still. You know, I mean, he can punch, he can move guys. He has um, a little bit of work kind of doing both and taking on, you know, linemen and, and working on that. But his, his pass catching to me is nowhere near first or second round talent. I think that he's, you know, he can make some decent plays, but he has, he has some drops. There's a lot of different little techniques that he has to work on. Um, I just didn't, I saw him as kind of like one of those guys that's going to get drafted early and by year five, he'll have some spot time as a cat, as a pass catcher, who's on the field a lot as a blocker early on in his career, but really never amounts to like a big time force as a receiver. And, you know, I just didn't see him. I didn't see him win enough in terms of winning separation, I didn't see him show great skill in terms of catching the ball. I thought he was good at times, but not, but not um, consistent enough. So, I yeah, I'm I just wasn't a huge fan of him, and I don't even have him in my top ten. And again, I grade towards receivers more than blockers, so that's probably also why. Yeah, I mean, I think I think those are, those points are legitimately valid. And I think you're right about Asiasi. I think he's a guy that, especially at a draft Twitter and the fantasy Twitter community, whatever you want to call it, I feel like he's been a guy that's kind of came up late in the year. You didn't really hear much about him. And I do agree with you. He might have the capabilities to be the best all-around complete tight end. He's got the body type that he could handle some inline duties. He already, at his size, is very athletic. He could attack the seam. So he's a guy I'm really intrigued by. I think he's going to go off the board earlier than some of the more well-known tight end names. And I think people are going to do a little bit of a double take who might not be, you know, more casual draft fans and, and into fantasy football, but not maybe diehard draft people that might be a little surprised when he comes off the board. Yeah, so one- yeah. One one quick thing I'll add about Komet because I just couldn't remember and I needed to look it up a little bit while we were talking. But the thing that bothered me is he's almost in my starter tier as a receiver, but he just couldn't catch the ball against contact or tight coverage. And to me, if you're going to separate yourself to be like a primary tight end in the league who's going to get the ball a lot, you have to win those matchups. And he just doesn't win enough of those matchups for me to feel comfortable about that. And then when you look at him as a route runner, it's kind of the – the same thing is just not enough one-on-one matchups that he wins. So it's like, yeah, if you get the benefit of, if you're getting the benefit of being the third or fourth option and you get a good matchup, he's going to make big plays for you. But you're not going to say third down and 14, we need to get the ball to Cole Kemet. 
You know, we're going to be, we're going to say that about it, about Kelsey. We're going to say that about Darren Waller, but we're not going to say that about Cole Kemet. Yeah. And the thing, and the thing about Cole Komet is if he's not winning in, in, in situations that were, that are involving with contact, he doesn't have the athleticism of an Evan Ingram that he's going to get open and, and give himself a lot of space. So it, tight ends a lot of time do got to win at the catch point. They got to win in terms of contested situations, be able to handle the physicality and physical nature of it. So yeah, I, I could totally see that. And it goes back to what we said. I think round three and then even round three, I think only maybe a, one or two should go off the board and then day three kind of pick your poison in terms of what you need uh, to add to your football team. So the tight end, tight end group as a whole, definitely a little bit down uh, compared to last year's. So let's round out the night by, by just talking about a few running backs. Cause I have three awesome. names that I need. I need to, to hear you explain. And the third one, I, I just can't wait because I follow, I feel like as much of the NFL draft as I could possibly follow. And I don't know who the guy is. And every year, every year I find one of them on, on when I'm reading the RSV and I'm like, I guess I know what I'm doing tomorrow because I, I don't know who this guy is. I haven't watched highlights. I haven't watched film on him. So we'll get to him in a second, but All right. Let's start with A.J. Dillon and, and Joshua Kelly because A.J. Dillon, I, I've gone on record as I'm a fan of him. I know he doesn't have the versatility that maybe you know other running backs in this class have, and he might be a little bit more scheme dependent. But I, I think he's being undervalued a little bit in, in terms of this running back class. And then Joshua Kelly, I do think he has that versatility to be a factor running and catching. So I'd love to hear your take on Kelly as well. I like both of these guys. Love both of these guys, really. AJ Dillon, I just don't get the whole thing that he's not a top five back in this class. I mean, he is, yes, he's not as scheme versatile, but he's not a slouch either. I mean, he can catch check downs. I mean, if you need him to catch screen passes, swing passes, wide routes, he's going to do that. You may not ask him to be a, you know, bullet route runner or running the wheel route, but whatever. You're going to have him line up in the backfield in single back sets. You're going to ask him to run gap or zone. And I think he can do both of those fine. Um, he's very nimble and he's someone that has, you know, incredible, you know, it, 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 I don't know if incredible, but he has really nice burst for his size and he has good change of direction. And obviously that explosive factor is there 41 inch vertical leap. That's quick twitch. You know, that's explosive. And for 247 pounds to be able to be that explosive, you see it in his game. And so, I mean, he, he's able to push piles. He's able to make the first man miss. He can, he knows how to use his spin move in a way where it's not just this, this Richard Mendenhall one move, one hit wonder thing that was good enough for Mendenhall to be a pretty good darn back in the NFL, but he's better than that. And so to me, the idea that he's a, he's a kind of a Derrick Henry type of back, I'm buying that completely. I'm totally in on that idea of him being in that, in that neighborhood. And people, I've heard, um, people say, well, he's carried the ball 866 times in the NFL, you know, in college football. We're worried about him, you know, not being able to, to last. And I'm like, well, have you thought about the fact that, Adrian Peterson, Steven Jackson, Michael Turner, um, Le'Veon Bell. Um, you know, I could name like a number of guys, 50% of the guys in the past, I think seven years, seven to 10 years who led the, N the NCAA in rushing attempts. 50% of them were Pro Bowl NFL players, like made the Pro Bowl at least once, you know, and 
And so to me, what that shows, you know, Cedric Benson, even a guy didn't have a great career and touched the ball a lot. Bobby Rainey, who had a long career, but wasn't a starter, you know, didn't break down. He was, you know, a capable player. If you carry the ball a lot and you don't have chronic injuries and you're not breaking down every two games or every five games and AJ Dillon didn't do that. That tells you he's capable of handling a, a nice load of, of you know, a nice workload. So plug that dude in and let him like touch the ball as much as you want to give it to him and enjoy the fact that you might get three, five, six years of really strong production from him. And yeah, you may need a scat back out of your backfield, but you were going to draft one anyway. You were going to add one to that, to that rotation anyhow. So that's fine. You give him a break and then you bring Dylan in there. And at worst, he leans forward and gains four yards. And at, and at best, he breaks through the line of scrimmage and gives you 25, 30, you know, and, and then, and then at game's end, nobody wants to tackle him and he breaks one for 77 yards and everybody talks about how fast he is, you know, and misunderstand, you know, and, you know, looks at that whole notion, but yeah, I love him. And then, and then, Joshua Kelly, I think, could be the steal of this draft class of running backs because he's so good at being able to diagnose, you know, tight box plays. I mean, Chip Kelly's offense looks a lot like, you know, there's a lot of two tight end, three tight end looks, you know, 12, 13 personnel. And he's running these plays in these, you know, dense boxes and being able to read the linebackers and safeties and make the right cut. He's a one cut back who gets downhill fast. And then he can make that second move in the open field and, and make the safety miss very easily and, and then take it the distance. And he's really got, I, I agree with you about pass catching. I mean, he's a guy who really makes it look easy catching some tougher, tougher targets that are kind of a little bit wide of target for him, even in the short game. And maybe you won't use him in the deep game as much. I don't know. I think there's room for him to probably do that, but. Even if he's just a checkdown receiver, he's a heck of a checkdown receiver. I think he's got potential as a blocker. Certainly, AJ Dillon does, dude. AJ Dillon, AJ Dillon has moments where he can handle front line defensive, you know, de- defensive linemen and linebackers pretty well. And I think Joshua Kelly's got that kind of potential too as a as a pass protector. He reminds me a little bit of Terrell Davis in terms of the way Terrell Davis played, not necessarily the talent level. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if he turns out to be a good starter in the league and and be surprisingly good uh, on a team. So those are two guys that like I don't I can't understand why not enough people are t- not nobody's talking about Kelly and Dylan. I'm just like that one's just to me like seems obvious that he's good. Well, I, you know, and I think that this goes back to the the perception of what a running back today should look like or or what they should be able or be capable of doing and you know I, and listen I'm the first one to say that I want a player who's versatile and can win in a variety of ways but that doesn't mean that when we talk about like we said earlier breadth and depth of skill it we shouldn't completely ignore the fact that you could be very 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 good at something and still have a significant role on the team. And AJ Dillon for me, I mean, he just, I, I don't particularly kind of, I don't particularly kind of align myself with the Derrick Henry's, but I see the James Connors and the Brandon Jacobs of the world being easily within his grasp. Sure. Easily. I mean, like right out of the box within his grasp. And now if we are going to talk is, is that Derrick Henry future within his grasp as well? I mean, it could be. And if it is more power to him, but I mean, I mean, out of the gate. He has utility 
as being at the very least a big strong part of a community. And like Absolutely. you said, what were we gonna say? Like, like, like you said, like he, he's functional enough on passing downs where he can make it work. I mean, yes, you're gonna draft a scat back as it is anyway. So who are you kidding? I mean, you wanted to draft one anyway. It's not like you're gonna. This is gonna perturb you from doing that. So I mean, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm right there with you with those players. Can you imagine him in the Baltimore Ravens offense? Yeah. Oh my God. We, you know we, that would. I don't want to see that the him. Other on, night. Yeah, we I don't talked see it. Him. We talked about that uh, recently with Graham Barfield because he did have some reservations about him overall, but he talked about, you know, in terms of what what it could be like post-draft if he ends up in the right spot. He goes, he goes, and I'm a realist. He goes, you put him in a couple different spots, he goes, and my concerns go out the window, he was saying, and we were saying Baltimore is a perfect example. I mean, look at the productivity Gus Edwards has had in that scheme the last couple years. Now, imagine taking away those Gus Edwards carries and giving them to someone with A.J. Dillon's athleticism and explosiveness and who's to say a year from now mark ingram is gone and it's not aj Dillon and justice hill forming maybe some type of duo in that backfield and there or what what if pittsburgh has some concerns about you know james connor and they looked at another physical type of guy like this you know i think there's i think there's more spots that I'd be intrigued with, you know, with him, that it's one of the things that I want him to go in a good landing spot, but all of a sudden the people who are all down on him are all of a sudden going to change their tune real quick if he ends up in somewhere like Baltimore or Pittsburgh. And why wouldn't he? Like, he's, he's <laughs> to me, he's one of those bags that screams what he is. Like, it's like, it's like you don't go to the hardware store looking for a hammer and buying a screwdriver. You just don't do that. So, like, if you need a screwdriver, you're not getting a hammer unless you're just a you're you're just a nincompoop about you know DIY 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 you know. But like to me, James James Connor is a framing hammer. You, that's what you use him for, and you don't worry. You, you know, and if and if you went to go get a screwdriver, then then bless your heart. You know, that's all I can say. Leave yeah, the finishing he, work to somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he, and he kind of belongs. I feel like he belongs in the AFC North. Like, doesn't that like where AJ Dillon belongs? Like, he just I could yes. see him like like five inches of snow on the ground in the game in December. Like yeah, AJ Dillon a- belongs there. And AFC South teams not wanting to tackle him. You know, exactly. that's ex- <laughs> you know, or NFC teams not wanting to tackle him. You know, just something like that. Yeah, and Absolutely. I'm an AFC North guy, so it's like to me, I see him and I go, "That's a hammer." Why would you not? Why would you not want that hammer? It's got like a, it's it even comes with a warranty, pretty much. You know, it's like been time tested. Like what? It hasn't broken down at all. I mean, it's done some heavy work, and it still looks brand new. I'm taking that. Absolutely. And let's let's close out the night here. I alluded to it before. I watched 32 running backs in the 2020 for the 2020 draft group. class. And I guess I should have watched 33. Tell me, tell me why I have to watch a 33rd running back and tell me a little bit about Tyson Williams at a BYU, what, who he is, what he brings to the table, because I'm going in completely dark on this. I haven't heard anyone else talk about him. I, I would be lying if I said I knew he was in this draft class. So fill us in on Tyson Williams and tell me why I should be watching some film on him tomorrow. See, it was either him or somebody else that I thought you were going to say. So <laughs> there we go. All right. Tyson Williams, six feet, 220 pounds, four star recruit out of North Carolina who landed at the University of North Carolina 
in the same time that Trubisky was the starter, Elijah Hood was the starter, and TJ Logan was the scat back. Those guys were established in the same way that Caleb Wilson was established ahead of Devin Asiasi. And I think that, you know, Williams didn't really get to see a lot of playing time. After about a year of this, he didn't want to stick around, probably didn't feel like it was a good fit with the program, and he transferred. So he went to South Carolina. Well, South Carolina, from what I hear, seems to have a reputation and may not be with Will Muschamp, but it did with Steve Spurrier, and that they had a they had a reputation among NFL scouts as being a team that didn't get the most out of their top talent, um, that they just weren't very good at being able to – I don't know what it was. But I think there's a pattern there, and it still exists. And I've even had a, a coach in the South Carolina um, area tell me um, – who edits my book – tell me that he uh he appreciated me explaining this because he's had the same impression even through this year um and so tyson williams tyson williams landed in south carolina and they had rico dowdle and rico dowdle was like a parade all-american quarterback who converted to running back dowdle gets hurt and so tyson williams comes in plays very well big strong good quickness, gets into the secondary, can stretch a play, give you 40, 50-yard gains if you give him that opportunity. He can run the screen passes, the throw-out passes, and and be able to make people miss and also run you over. Physical player with good vision who can run gap or zone. And he looks like every bit of a four-star recruit that you would imagine. He's playing well. Then he gets benched, and they bring Rico Donald back in. Looking around on the internet, trying to figure out why he got benched, and the, the 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 things that were inferred were, oh, well, he needs to hold on to the ball better. All right, well, so I'm looking at his stats, you know, after the fact, after, you know, he's been at BYU, and he's only had two fumbles in his career, and only one of them came at South Carolina. So I don't know why he got benched other than like, maybe he fumbled in practice more. I don't know. He didn't fumble in the games other than once. But he got benched, and he ended up just playing sporadically and kind of being a fill-in starter. Enrico Dottle was a player that even they said to the media that they felt like Dottle could be a much better player than he was if he put his mind to it. But he had a lot of small injuries and major. He had like a combination of injuries, like a sports hernia, a broken um, leg. He had a knee sprain. So he never stayed healthy. And I think they probably were alluding to if he applied himself more and trained better, maybe they he, he wouldn't have gotten hurt. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing, but it seemed like there was a big carousel going on with his running backs, and they had some talented guys. They didn't have a great offensive line, but it seemed like the running backs got as much blame as the offensive line. So two years there, he's like, I've graduated. I've got another year of eligibility. I'm going to BYU. He plays four games at BYU and has really strong four weeks there. And BYU was so impressed with him um, I mean, like, it just seems like they were unbelievably impressed with Tyson Williams, the person and the player when he arrived there and made a really profound impression on them early on. And he tore his ACL after during the fourth game against Washington, I believe. But watching him against Tennessee, watching him against USC, Washington, Utah, he looked good. You know, I mean, like decisive, like looked like a pro back to me, you know, Um and then he gets hurt, tears the ACL in like, I guess, late September, early October. And he should be fully healthy if nine months is the estimated time. Should be healthy in July. Um, and if he's not, I think a team will put him on pup and and probably give him a futures contract. 
And I wouldn't be surprised at all if this guy winds up being a contributor, if not a starter in the NFL for some stretch of time, maybe like the way Isaiah Crowell was a starter for a little bit of time um, and, and showed some starter abilities. I think Tyson Williams has at least that kind of upside. He looked like a, he looked like a man running the football when I watched him. And, and so I'm more inclined to look at the South Carolina and North Carolina experience as well, you know, they're ACC teams that like basketball an awful lot. And, and I'm kidding when I say that, but I mean, you know, to the extent that maybe, maybe these staffs didn't use him as well as they could have. And maybe he was the exception to the rule of a guy who moved around a lot, who actually is a capable player that teams just kind of skipped the beat on. And, and we do have to remember, I mean, who was the guy at North Carolina who played for the Steelers who, who uh, played behind Jerome Bettis and was undrafted and didn't even like ever see the field at North Carolina and ended up having a strong career with the Steelers. I can't remember his name. Real fast dude who uh, played behind Bettis and was a starter for a while for Pittsburgh. You know, that's another guy who just kind of didn't, you know, didn't happen for him. So uh, Tyson Williams, man, that's a guy I keep an eye on. Absolutely. Now uh, he he's now up at the queue in terms of uh, someone I'm going to check out. Matt, as always, absolute pleasure. Uh, I am sure most of our audience is following, but please let them know where they could go and purchase the RSP if they're interested. Tell them a little bit about your YouTube channel or anything else you want to just uh, promote a little bit. I appreciate it. Um, the easiest way is if you're familiar with the RSP, mattwaldman.com. That site looks different than mattwaldmanrsp.com. Don't be alarmed. It's just that I'm an entrepreneur who's kind of been trying to do a bunch of things all at once, and those sites don't match quite yet, but I assure you they're both legit. You pay by PayPal, um, and what you get with the RSP is a pre-draft, a post-draft, and a newsletter that comes out once a month from June through December that even updates three years' worth of rookie rankings during the, um, three times during the year. Um, during that newsletter span. Um, the YouTube channel, Matt Waldman's RSP Film Room, I have nearly 500 videos up there from years ago up to today on, you know, anywhere between two to three minutes on an aspect of a prospects game, all the way up to hour long in depth looks on players. Um, where I, you know, break things down talking about their mechanics, their conceptual skills, um, their techniques, um, and their athletic ability and, and kind of pose larger questions along with it. And of course, you can find my RSP cast um where i co-host a show with mark schofield called the quick game we talk about the nfl and the nfl draft and then quick rapid fire fashion um and then i do a show with mark schofield uh, excuse me with russ landy the um calgary um scout for the cfl who's also played in the nfl as also was an nfl scout um with two different teams and we talk about scouting just the the whole nature of scouting as independent scouts as well as what it's like from his angle, from a team standpoint and the ins and outs of looking at players. We share what we think about some of those players each week, as well as talking about actual just matters of what um, are issues for teams and issues for scouts and, and the decision-making process that goes into things from, you know, scout from charting quarterbacks to things that, that bog us down to things that we just like to talk about that kind of, that are fun, real inside baseball kind of stuff for the scouting profession. Awesome stuff, guys. Make sure you're checking out all of Matt's work, the videos, the podcast, the RSP, all top-notch stuff. Make sure you're following him on Twitter. Uh, I can't uh, I can't recommend it enough. 
Matt, any final parting shots for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to echo very much the same things you said, Paul, the same sentiments. I mean, I, I can't extend the gratitude highly enough for you for being here, but also to recommend everybody out there that's listening. I mean, if you haven't looked into the YouTube channel, you'd be really surprised at just the depth of players that he's gone through, the various aspects of the game that he explores. I, I think your YouTube channel is definitely an unsung hero of a lot of the work that you do because, you know, I, I think that's something that has really been tremendous over the years. And, and it's clear, like, just like me, you can see how all of our videos develop over time in terms of like where you are. And you got some pretty snazzy videos up there now. I mean, you, you're adding some, you're adding a very full kind of repertoire of, you know, digitizing what it is for the player, what they're doing on the field, allowing us greater conceptual insight into your own understanding of what you're seeing. It really is a, a treasure trove of scouting information and just insights into how to look at players. So if you're not looking at the YouTube channel and really taking advantage of that, I think that's a huge, huge, huge thing, Matt, that you've done recently that I, I just, I, I think is fantastic. I appreciate it. And, you know, this, I really, I really do appreciate getting to be on this show because you, like I said at the beginning, um, this, you guys give me more of a chance to geek out about talking about the game and the players in a way that I truly appreciate doing more than any other podcast that I'm on. I mean, seriously, in, in that, in that realm. And I appreciate what you said about the YouTube channel because, it's, it, you know, you'll see they're kind of rough cuts as I go along. I mean, I'm not, you know, you got a guy like Brett Coleman who does really great polished work and he's a former NFL producer who, you know, who does all of that high end stuff. Now mine are obviously watchable <laughs> and, and, and I try to make them as watchable as possible, but they're more, um, you, you know, they're, they're less polished on that end. But at the same time, I will share this story and I hope, you know, if you don't mind, I was in, I was at the senior bowl. Of, of about four or five years ago with Cecil Lammy and Cecil's, you know, obviously friend of the show here and, and works at football guys. And we're, you know, we do the audible together and he, he does a lot of Broncos work and works for the Denver Broncos and John Elway walks in and I'm a bronze fan growing up. You know, I, I, my father was a Broncos fan and the, and, and the, the one thing I would have liked more than for the bronze to beat the Broncos after that happened was to probably hit John Elway. Like that would probably be like, that was like a bucket list thing. So he walks into, he walks into Starbucks with two guys. They look like former players, kind of big dudes, but they're about my age. One looks like a lineman. One looks more like he's built like a runner or a slot receiver. I don't know, but they, they look like former players. They get in line. John says hello to Cecil. Cecil says hello back. I get up and I joke to Cecil. I'm, I'm going to go sack John Elway on behalf of Cleveland Browns fans everywhere. And will you bail me out of jail? He laughs. I get in line and I'm in line. And the, the two guys are talking to John in front of me. The bigger guy turns around and looks at me for a second, does a double take. And John's talking to him and he completely turns his back on John Elway. And he goes, you're the guy with the YouTube videos. And he just starts geeking out about the RSP film room and he elbows his friend who's in the middle of listening to John and they both turn their backs and John's looking over their shoulder, looking at me like, who the F is that guy? And why did those, these two guys turn their back on, you know? And I look over at Cecil cause they're both geeking out. They go, do you watch his videos? Yeah. I subscribe to his, his site. You know, he's like, I've learned more about, I learned more about skill players than I ever did playing in the NFL. And 
he was he was a former offensive lineman for the Packers and Browns and played in the um European the Europe League NFL Europe League for a little while. Um Lance Zeno was his name. Um and and so he he was like, "Yeah, we're trying to get a job with we're trying to get a job with John, maybe hook on his scouts, you know, and I'm sitting here thinking, guys, you might not want to like turn your back on him while he's talking, like, <laughs> you know, probably to do that. But I, and they're like, can we get your card? And like, I'm turning around and looking and Cecil's just looking at me with his jaw open and we're just laughing as we're witnessing, I'm witnessing this. And so it was fun to go back, you know, so that's a testament. I guess that's a testament. Take that, John. The film room. <laughs> and it was fun to be able to, you know, say to my dad, yeah, you know, you know, I, you know, John Elway, John Elway. I had two people literally turn their back on John Elway during an informal interview um, because they were geeking out about me. And John was wondering who the hell I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's so that's, great. that's my RSP film room story for you. If you're, if you're curious about people who watch it, it's, it's more than just fantasy people. So. Absolutely. And guys, you know, we love the opportunity to have Matt on the show because we can go deep. And you, if you're listening to the show and you made it through the hour and a half and you're like, man, I didn't hear Matt talk about JK Dobbins or Jonathan Taylor or DeAndre Swift or Tua or Joe Burrow or CD Lamb or Jerry Judy. I am sure I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that Matt's <laughs> going to be on another 10 podcasts over the next two weeks. And those are going to be the guys he's going to talk about on every other podcast that he comes on. Okay. So listen to those podcasts and you can get coverage <laughs> on those guys everywhere. So yeah. we, we intentionally, you know, listen, we, we talked on some of the big guys, but we intentionally skewed more towards guys that I think would make for interesting conversation. Uh, and, and that's where we kind of geared this to. And obviously, hopefully, you know, if interested, we would love to have you back post-draft as always after post-RSP comes out. And then we will hit on some of those bigger guys once we know some landing spots and we'll, and we'll touch upon some of those guys. But we just love before the draft talking about some of these deep guys that I, I don't think get the justice and, and the, the attention that they should because so much is always just focused on the top fives or top sixes or top tens at every position. And, and you never really, you know, hear a, a, enough podcasts or TV coverage talking about the deeper ones. So thank you again for, for the deep talk that, that we had tonight. Yeah. Thank you. And hopefully this hour and a half, um, covered the 90 minute movie that your kids were watching and you had to be in the room just to make sure that, you know, one didn't decide to deep fry the other and you can, you, you can just kind of sit, sit there and smile and know that, you know, you've made it to the end of the Disney movie that you've seen 15 times. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Guys, again, make sure you're following Matt, make sure you're following Matt and I on, uh, Twitter. If you have any questions about the RSP, reach out to Matt Wallman. If you have any questions about the Saturday Sunday Premium Notebooks, reach out to Matt Caraccio or myself on Twitter. Uh, we'd love to answer any questions and just, you know, guys, hopefully you are using football and the draft and, and stuff like that as a little bit of a welcome distraction amongst everything that is going on. I hope everybody is being safe and healthy, practicing the social distancing uh, and just using football as a little bit of an outlet and a little bit of a, you know, distraction away from uh, what is going on right now in our world. So on behalf of our special guest, Matt Wallman, on behalf of Matt and our sound and tech engineer, David Nakano and myself, Thank you for joining us, and we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.